What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Today, we're trying something a little bit different. This week, we asked for your questions on the war in Ukraine, and we've really been impressed with the incredible breadth and depth of the questions that have come really from all over the world. So what we're going to do to try to get through the most questions we can is break them down into three categories. First, we'll focus on matters military and tactical. And then we'll move on to sanctions and their effects, to oil and gas, commodities, and so on. And then on to misinformation, information suppression, communications in the internet, digital payment systems, basically all things technological. And we will answer your questions about what's happened to Lisa, who we last heard from before the conflict broke out. It's a somewhat easier day for for me and for you, John. It's not us asking the questions, it's the listeners. That's right, we have made the listeners do the work today. Long may it continue. Right, let's dive in then. Let's do it. Now, it's no surprise that many of you wrote to us with questions relating to weapons and battlefield tactics about the diplomacy at work in the crisis. So we've asked our defense editor, Shashank Joshi, to answer some of them. Shashank, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Jason. And hello, John. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. So first off, we've heard a lot of calls from a lot of people for a no-fly zone over Ukraine, including from President Zelensky, Tom Bradley from London, Jessica Poon from Hamburg, And Riley Bell asked, what does a no-fly zone actually look like? How would NATO enforce it? And which military airfields would be most used for NATO aircraft? Well, I think the most important thing that everyone has to understand is that a no-fly zone isn't just a thing you declare and then other people stay out of it. It's something that your air force has to enforce. It has to keep other planes out of it, including by shooting them down if necessary. In other words, shooting down Russian planes if necessary. And that's why Western leaders have ruled it out, because they realise shooting down Russian planes is an enormous risk and could lead to a bigger war between NATO and Russia. But that's not all. If you're going to fly your planes in that space to patrol the airspace, you also have to make sure they won't get shot down from the ground. So you have to bomb any surface-to-air missiles on the ground or suppress them by some other means like electronic warfare, which means you would first have to do missile strikes and bombs on Russian surface-to-air missiles, radars on the ground, before you could safely put your own planes into that space. That's precisely why everyone is so cagey about actually acting on that idea. And here's one that I've, I've asked myself, actually. Jeffrey Bentley uh, writes in and asks, if the Russian invasion force is parked in a line 40 miles long, they should be sitting ducks. Why can't the Ukrainians just pick them off, starting at the front, moving towards the back? Well, first of all, the Ukrainians are picking off some Russian forces. In fact, in the last 24 hours or so, I've seen a video of a drone strike by one of Ukraine's Turkish-made drones, a TB-2, that has been finding a Russian force that doesn't have air defenses and blowing it up. And that's happened a lot. Now, why isn't that big convoy north of Kiev being treated in the same way? 
I suspect, but I can't prove, that the answer is it's probably better defended. We don't always see it, but it's possible that it has air defences in terms of electronic warfare assets that can jam drones or, or frazzle their electronics and keep them away, or uh, surface-to-air missiles that can simply shoot down something like a TB2. But of course, it doesn't mean they can't get close on the ground, and we have been seeing anti-tank attacks on the southern end of that convoy. Shashank, I'd like to pick up on something you just mentioned concerning drones. This is a question that Billy Kern from New York wrote in to ask, but it's also one I've been asking too. Can you talk a bit more about how Ukraine is using drones, how effective they are, what's constraining their use, and and are there sort of more considerations when it comes to other countries supporting Ukraine with drones as opposed to supporting them with conventional military supplies? Well, Ukraine has a fleet of Turkish-made drones, but it doesn't have all that many of them. I think the figure was somewhere around 20 or so before the war began. Some of them are likely to have been shot down. And although Turkey has been funneling more of them to Ukraine, uh, I understand, in the last couple of weeks, this is not a limitless supply. So they have to be used in a judicious way, ideally against a kind of Russian detachment that may have wandered away from its air defences and won't have that aerial protection. And where that has happened, from what I understand, Ukraine's had considerable success. If you look at the total Russian losses that have been proven by images published on social media, these run to over a thousand vehicles and aircraft. But there are other constraints in using drones. For example, the TB2 has to take off from somewhere. So, you know, you need an airfield. You need to be either within line of sight to have sort of a radio frequency communication with it, or you need to be communicating with it over satellites, and the Russians can jam those kind of communications. So drones are proving effective, and I think just as we have in other recent conflicts like that between Armenia and Azerbaijan, we're learning a lot of interesting things about how effective these cheap aircraft can be, but they are not a silver bullet, and you know you still have to use them in cautious ways. And in a general sense about military hardware, Shashank, Kuhn Huveling and David Menendez Urdado uh, ask similar questions. How are weapons being delivered to the Ukrainian army, and would controlling the western border be a feasible strategy for Russia to, to shut that influx down? The short answer is weapons are being sent mostly to Poland. Uh, there's a particular airport in Poland that's become a huge hub of supplies, but Obviously, Western officials are aware of the dangers of putting all their stuff into one depot. Let's not forget, Russia's military intelligence agency blew up arms depots in Bulgaria and in the Czech Republic a number of times in the last 10 years. They're trying to diversify the number of depots they're using. And I think sites in Romania, which has, I think, one of the longest European borders with Ukraine, possibly the longest, and certainly the most mountainous over the Carpathian Mountains, are also being used. Russian military operations don't stretch that far west just yet. And given the difficulties they're having just dealing with Kiev and and the south and the east, I think it's going to be a long time before Russia has any hope of establishing control. That's not to say they wouldn't risk raids, missile attacks, special forces raids on some of those supply lines, perhaps on some of those convoys coming in. And I think Western officials are well aware of those risks. Here's one that we, when we first spoke to you about this, we didn't know we would still be talking about this. Um, Mud, the thaw, uh, the the changing logistics when things get a little bit warmer. Casey Martin wrote in to ask what's Russia doing about its logistical constraints and specifically, will they only worsen with the coming ground thaw? Well, Jason, you and I spoke about mud a, a lot and we've seen serious problems, particularly north of Kiev, in a very swampy region and some evidence the Ukrainians have actually flooded it deliberately. And that coincides with the Russian army's maintenance problems. You know, they've used 
poor, cheap knockoff tyres on some of their uh, military vehicles, including their air defence systems. And so those have got stuck in the mud. And when they try and get them out, the cheap tyres mean that they rip. The other problem is that because they have clearly botched their logistics, a lot of their units are now stuck far at the back end of that column and they they can't move stuff off-road precisely because of the muddy conditions on either side. So they're stuck to the roads, which of course makes them easier to ambush. So mud is proving a problem and the spring thaw in Ukraine, as it continues in the coming months, is going to make life more difficult for the Russians unless they find a way to get off the roads and operate as a more all-terrain force. Let's turn to the cheerful topic of nuclear war. Um... We've had a bunch of questions about the use of nukes in this conflict, the potential use of nukes. Jonathan S. from Washington, D.C., and Tanya Capino, who's a med student from Loma Linda, California, write in and ask, what are battlefield nukes? What are they in relative yield, range, and destructive potential? And is there any evidence that Russia has moved any of them from storage facilities toward the front in Ukraine? And if Russia were to use one of them, even a nuclear weapon with, with, with limited yield and away from population centers, how do you think the world would react? Nuclear planners divide nukes up into two sorts, strategic, which are the kind of big intercontinental weapons that you would fire at a city, and non-strategic, which is pretty much everything else. And those are supposedly lower yield. If a thermonuclear bomb has yield in the megatons, city busting, uh, a non-strategic weapon, sometimes called a tactical nuclear weapon, although that terminology is sometimes deemed misleading, uh, you know, could be in the kilotons. So let's be clear, we're still talking here about things that could cause, you know, untold human suffering and could destroy and render uninhabitable huge areas. I should emphasize there is absolutely no evidence that Russia has deployed these or moved them away from their storage locations. And so when we hear about Russia raising the readiness of nuclear forces, uh, the actual physical changes it's making appear to be minimal, if any at all. Um, But it is clear that Western officials are worried about the prospect of Russia using one of these nukes to escalate inside Ukraine, perhaps not for battlefield purposes, but to show its willingness to escalate, to show its resolve and to force the West to back down. We had quite a few questions from listeners wondering why NATO members and and other countries are reluctant to get involved. I'm going to combine a couple of them from Scott Stocker from New Zealand and Andrew McGrath. Scott asked, NATO intervened in the civil war in Libya in 2011. Why can't it get involved in this conflict? And Andrew wanted to know, why are non-NATO Western allies with sizable air forces such as Israel not helping more in Ukraine? The short answer is that everyone is terrified of things getting out of hand. Libya was not Russia. Libya didn't have nuclear weapons. Libya could not fire conventional cruise and ballistic missiles at European cities. So the escalation risks are much higher. Now, yes, there are other countries that could also get involved. But of course, you know, the example of Israel, which you gave, Israel needs Russian acquiescence to be able to do what it's doing in Syria, which is bomb Iranian proxies in Syria. So Israel is very afraid of getting on the wrong side of the Russians. Uh, And other countries are not interested in in tangling with Moscow. Shashank, one last question. I saw a few days ago you, you tweeted about some of the things that you expected in this conflict but got wrong. I wonder what those things are. What has taken you by surprise in the past few weeks? Well, so many things, you know, where to begin. But I think the most important was the degree of Ukrainian resistance. I anticipated a Russian shock and awe campaign of missile strikes, precision bombs, and that was botched. But 
regardless of, of how much the Russians botched it, I have been impressed and pleasantly surprised by the degree to which the Ukrainians have held off the Russians on the battlefield in conventional warfare. The losses they have inflicted on Russian jets, on Russian tanks, have been sizable and substantial. That has created a kind of window for Western countries to put anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, and funnel those into Ukraine in large numbers. That wouldn't have happened had Volodymyr Zelensky and his government collapsed like a house of cards on day one of this campaign. From the beginning of this war, if you'd asked me, could the Ukrainians have held out? You did ask me, and I said, I don't think they could. I was wrong. And now we're at the point where we have to seriously ask ourselves, could we see a stalemate? Could we see an outcome in which, even if the Ukrainians don't win, that Russia loses. I think that is becoming somewhat more realistic day by day. All right, let's end it there. Shashank, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Great to get those answers. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk to you both. We're doing our best to answer some of your questions here, but we've got a whole series on our website called The Economist Explains that tackles all sorts of questions that arise in the news agenda in way more depth than we have time for here. Yeah, and you can get access to that in all of our online and print content by subscribing. You'll find an introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. Just click the link in the notes for today's show. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. All right, we're back. So we just covered the military angles of your Ukraine war questions. Now let's move on to your questions on energy, sanctions, and more. To do that, we're joined by Charlotte Howard, who is our New York bureau chief and U.S. business editor. Charlotte, we usually appear together as we do this week on our U.S. politics show, Checks and Balance, where we talked about the U.S. housing market with John Prito. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Fancy meeting you here. Good to see you on The Intelligence, Charlotte. We are turning to you for all of the listener questions about oil and gas, commodities, sanctions, uh, all matters, let's say, business and finance. Indeed, I'm ready. Our first question is about oil, and it comes from Sydney Martini. She writes, I am an American living in France. I was pleasantly surprised at the announcement of U.S. sanctions and oil embargo. Why is the EU dragging its feet? There's a pretty straightforward answer to that, which is that America is far less dependent on Russian energy than is Europe. So about 8% of American imports of oil come from Russia. In contrast, in Europe, Russia is supplying nearly 40% of Europe's total gas consumption, a quarter of its oil. They just have a lot more at stake in Europe. But I would say that Western companies are shunning Russian energy in general. There was a big blowback after Shell accepted a delivery of Russian crude. So even though there aren't sanctions that are formally in place, it's much harder to sell Russian energy into Europe at the moment. 
And we've had a couple of questions on prices. Kevin Leibel, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Esha Chowdhury ask, why are prices going crazy when Russia controls just a small fraction of global supply? And relatedly, I guess, to what extent would countries' reserves mitigate the effects of a ban on Russian gas? So as for Russia controlling a fraction of global supply, it's true that it's a fraction, but it's a pretty big fraction. Russia supplies about a tenth of the world's oil. That's a lot. And for countries' reserves and their role here— There are a lot of reserves. There's a lot of oil stored in strategic petroleum reserves around the world. So Goldman Sachs, a bank, estimates that countries could release about 2 million barrels a day of oil for a few months. But if you compare that to the total exports just to Europe and America from Russia, that's about half. So reserves alone can't fill the gap. Let's stay on the energy theme for a bit. We have a question from Charlotte Unala from Turku in Finland. And she asks... What would it take for European countries to decrease energy dependence on Russia? Could Germany theoretically fire back up their dormant nuclear plants, or are they irreversibly decommissioned? Well, at The Economist, we've long argued that Germany's decision to move away from nuclear was short-sighted, and that's both for environmental reasons, because nuclear power has no emissions, and also for geopolitical ones, as we are seeing play out right now. But my colleague Vijay Vaithiswaran has written a lot about European energy And there are ideas for how to move Europe away from Russian dependence. So those include a whole menu of things, importing more LNG, liquefied natural gas from America and elsewhere, filling up Europe's gas storage tanks, delaying the retirement of some nuclear reactors that were scheduled to shut at the end of this year and in 2023, you know, accelerating the deployment of renewables, replacing boilers with electric heat pumps. There's all this stuff that you can do But it doesn't happen that quickly, and it's still not on a scale where you'd replace Russian gas entirely. So particularly when we're talking about gas in Europe, we're talking about reducing dependence in the short term, not eliminating it. And all of that raises tons of questions about energy security and how this affects the green energy transition, something I know Vijay went into in some detail on our sister show Money Talks this week. But a simpler, nearer-term question for you, Charlotte. Do you think that we'll see prices continue to surge? There are a few reasons why I think you're likely to see elevated oil prices for a while. The reserves aren't adequate to meet all of the displaced demand. American frackers, even though people sometimes call them the swing suppliers, they can't ramp up production that quickly for logistical reasons. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are reluctant so far to boost output. They are two countries that could have additional capacity. Venezuela and Iran, there's talk that some of their oil could come online, but it's not clear diplomatically actually that that will happen. So I think that there is going to be real tightness in the oil market because of this war. So let's move on to another commodity, from oil and gas to wheat. Marty Tulenheimo from Helsinki asks, how do we avert the looming global food catastrophe in the making as both Russian and Ukrainian wheat will be almost 100% off the market? That is such a tough question, and I don't have a good answer to it. I think it's going to be hard to avoid the effects of this. Inflation globally is already at 7%. It could rise further. And you saw in 2007, 2008, when food prices were really rising quickly, just how much instability that can cause. There were food riots then in nearly 50 countries. And so there clearly is an imperative to try to avoid something similar this time around. And we've written about making it easier for poor countries, for instance, to get loans from the IMF. But it's really serious and a big, big risk. 
And, and thinking about elsewhere and, and supply chains, Santiago Lakatos asks, I'm wondering what common consumer tech products will be significantly affected by Russian sanctions. What is if there are any companies that have started discussing delays and, and mentions there's been talk of smartphones and chips? What's, what's the story there? I think Santiago is right to focus on smartphones and chips as one example of how companies may be hit by commodity shortages. You know, if you look back through supply chains, for instance, Ukraine produces a lot of neon gas. Neon gas prices spiked after the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. That had implications for chip makers. It's a really interesting question. There are going to be a lot of additional delays, I think, to certain products, and this will help feed into the broader inflation concern. So earlier this week, on Monday, we talked to Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor, about the effects of, of sanctions on Russia. And we've got a related question today from Michele Grassi. He wants to know, how likely is it for Russia to default, and what would be the implications? I think it's pretty likely that Russia will default. Morgan Stanley thinks that Russia could default by mid-April. Putin seems to want to repay some bonds in rubles, which isn't going to go over that well. There are relatively small sums of money involved within the context of the global financial system. So I don't think that that in itself is going to be a huge risk factor. What do you think about the financial system more broadly? But it's just one of a series of ways in which how this war has precipitated steps that are extremely risky for countries, Russia in particular, Russians in particular, but also the global economy more broadly. Okay, well, on that bleak note... We'll bring it to an end. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlotte. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks. A lot of the questions that you sent to us had to do with technology, and we covered some of those with Shashank at the beginning of the show. But a lot of people also wanted to know about issues to do with tech outside the fighting itself. So we've brought in Tim Cross, our technology editor. Hey, Tim. Hi, guys. Tim, let's dive right in. Let's start with a question from Vim van Dyke in Fairfax, Virginia. He says the Russian people are being presented with a story of the war that does not match the reality of what's happening and wants to know what the West can do to try to get the true story to them. And Marta Homan is a Ukrainian living in Australia who similarly says breaking through the Russian propaganda machine is, is no small task and asks, how do we bring the truth to the people who can't or won't hear it? Yeah, so I think this is basically quite a difficult question. There wasn't a great deal of independent media in Russia anyway before the war. And the passage of this new law where you can get up to 15 years in jail for promulgating fake news as defined by the Russian government means there's even less of it now. And we've started to see the government and Russia's censors crack down a bit on internet access. So access to websites like the BBC or Deutsche Welle or Facebook or Twitter has all been blocked. At the same time, it's possible to overstate this. And while we were recording this, I checked. And at the moment, things like YouTube, for instance, are still accessible. And I think one of the things that the internet does is it has so many different transmission channels that unless you just sort of completely cut the internet off, it's very hard to plug them all. And a lot of the individual apps still work as well. So messaging apps like WhatsApp are quite popular in Russia. Uh, WhatsApp has the advantage of being encrypted. The other one, of course, is Telegram, which is another messaging app, a bit like WhatsApp, but with both big public channels and small private conversations. That's very popular in Russia, in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe. So there are less organized and more small-scale ways in which people living outside Russia can try to get news into Russia through things like that. So clearly there are ways for motivated individuals to get news of what's happening. But Russia is really doing its best to control the flow of information 
in its own country. What about in Ukraine, though? Does it have the capacity to control information there by shutting down the internet, for example? I think not directly, not yet. And that's maybe a question when and if Russia does manage to, to subjugate the country. But of course, what is happening is all this fighting and the shelling in all these cities like Mariupol means large parts of Ukraine don't have access to electricity. No electricity, among many other things, means no television and no internet, which makes it hard to get information either in or out. Even there, though, we've seen some interesting attempts to fight back against that. And maybe the most eye-catching one is a very old technology. The BBC said just after the invasion that it was going to restart shortwave radio broadcasts into Eastern Europe. And listeners who are old enough will remember stations like Radio Free Europe, the BBC World Service, Voice of America. And these were sort of Western-funded stations that transmitted radio, you know, news and entertainment and so on, across the Iron Curtain. And the good thing about these kind of radio transmissions is if you if you pick the wavelengths right and you use shortwave radio, the wavelengths bounce off the upper atmosphere, a layer called the, the ionosphere, and that means they can propagate for thousands of kilometers. So the stations can be safely far away from censorship or secret policemen or even invading armies. I have to say the first time I ever heard the BBC, it was on a shortwave radio. Where? I was in Florida at the time. It seemed the most distant thing in the world. We have at least one employee whose father taught himself English in communist Poland back in the day by listening to the BBC and so on. I think in Eastern Europe, there's still quite a strong folk memory of listening to those shortwave radio stations. Shifting gears a bit, Tim, and, and moving on to cryptocurrencies that we're hearing more and more about in the context of the conflict in Ukraine, Tom Krauss writes in to ask, what's the role of cryptocurrencies in avoiding sanctions on Russia, and what are Western countries doing to prevent that? My view on this is that the main thing you have to remember with cryptocurrencies is that most of them are not designed to be anonymous, like quite the reverse. So Bitcoin, for instance, the Bitcoin blockchain is essentially a comprehensive list that anyone can look at whenever they want of every single transaction that's ever been made with Bitcoin. So if I was going to set up a sanctions-busting business, I probably wouldn't do it by publishing all my accounting in my books for the entire world to read. It's maybe a little bit more complicated than that in practice because the trick is tying wallet addresses, which are just meaningless strings of letters and numbers, to actual real-world entities. But you know, police and organizations like the FBI have got quite a bit better at doing that in the past few years. So I think if certainly any kind of large organization that's thinking maybe we can use cryptocurrency to get and sell millions of dollars worth of machine tools or industrial goods or weapons or something into Russia... I think trying to run a sanctions-busting operation with a set of completely open books is a risky venture, to put it mildly. Tim, that was great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, guys. Now, we've been tackling a lot of your broad questions about the war and its wider implications— what we haven't talked about today is the humanitarian situation, the misery and uncertainty in Ukraine, or the more than two million people who have already fled. Three weeks ago, before the war began, we spoke with a 26-year-old Ukrainian woman named Lisa. It's something that stuck with one of our listeners, Francisco Tino. He wrote in to say that at the time, he thought Lisa was overreacting to the threat of war. He says, a few days later, I realized how wrong I was. Yesterday, we contacted Lisa again. I'm in Lithuania right now, but it's my last day here. 
Tomorrow I'm heading out. I'm not sure yet where I will end up. My family and friends are still in Ukraine. Most of them are in Kiev. Uh, the rest of my family is in Western Ukraine. They are safe. They don't want to leave. I already know that I have lost some of my people I used to know. Some of them are dead now. I prefer to not be asked how am I doing because I really don't know how to answer. I want to say I'm okay, but I'm not really. I don't feel like I have right to complain because I'm in a safe place. I have money. I have an apartment. I'm okay. More than anything, I just want to come back and see my family and friends all still there, still alive. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'd like to say a big thanks to you, the listeners, for your intelligent questions. Sorry that we just couldn't get to all of them. Yeah, I'll second that, Jason. Thank you very much to all of our listeners, not just for lending us your ears every weekday, but this week for taking the time to write. I hope you feel we did your curiosity justice. We will, of course, keep in touch with Lisa in the weeks to come, and we'll hope to hear from her again, too. We have a terrific team helping us answer your questions and doing great work to put our show out week in and week out. Our editors are Marguerite Howell, Kim Gittleson, and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with extra help this week from Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are John Joe Devlin, Jack Gill, Stevie Hertz, and Sam Westron. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and William Warren. Our assistant producer is Abisoy Osendairo with additional production help this week from Kevin Canners. We'll all see you back here on Monday. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.